A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, at that time the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my field, or then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, by my field that is in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel, and weighed out my money to him. Seventeen shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed my weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be brought in, bought in this land. Here at the Spirit of Satan, God's people. Thanks. All who are able, please stand and sing Psalm 91, verses are lines 1 through 6 and 14 through 16. Found in there.
Paul urges Timothy to lead a life worthy of his calling. He is to remind us, he is to remind those who are rich to be generous to those in need. A reading from the first letter of Paul to Timothy. Of course, there is a great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. The word of the Lord.
Pray the praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When uh, Dan was just a young punk before he was ordained priest, I knew him then. And we were both involved in a parish in Boston, St. John the Evangelist, uh, where uh, Dan did his field education for two years or three years? Two years. Uh, And then after I finished my degree at Harvard, I became the rector of St. John's Bowdoin Street. Um, So it is a parish that formed us in our understanding of what what community is. Um, It was a strange parish uh, with a very, very long history. It was the first Anglo-Catholic parish in Boston. Uh, The building itself was part of the uh, Underground Railroad for bringing slaves to freedom. Uh, And down in the basement, way down in the third basement below the building, you could still see the caves and tunnels where the slaves were brought. Uh, We used to be in a neighborhood until the city government decided that it was an urban blight. So they tore down all the houses where the poor people lived, and they built government centers. So we went from being off in the side of the city to being in the center of the city Uh, and in the center center of the government. Uh, The parish had been run by monks, uh, Anglican monks, the uh, uh, Cowley Fathers, and it was known as a kind of mission uh, parish to the the poor and to the dispossessed of the city. When uh, I became rector and shortly after you left and went south to Taunton, was the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, um, which was a very frightening time. And so young men would come to the parish on a Friday saying, my family's kicked me out because I'm gay and I've got AIDS and uh, I've just started having symptoms. And in those days, those young men died within a couple of weeks uh, of their diagnosis. And Their parishes didn't want them, and their families didn't want them, and they would end up on our doorstep. And so our parish began to minister to these young, mostly young, very young men uh, who were dying. And uh, in the first year of the AIDS pandemic, we, between January and uh, Easter, we buried on the average of one young man a week. Um, rejected by families, if the parish didn't come to the funerals, no one would care. Their, their families wouldn't uh, often barely pay the expenses of having a funeral. Undertakers didn't want the bodies because they were afraid of, of getting AIDS. At that point, very few of us understood how you got AIDS or even what it was. Uh, so we... Our parish gathered them, and the image that reminded me of this is of Jeremiah putting something priceless in a in a urn. Because they were mostly cremated, we would then be sent uh, small boxes of precious body uh, parts. 
uh, cremated to the parish. Uh, it was a very difficult time for the parish. Uh, we were all at one level, it, even given normal circumstances, a funeral a week would plunge the parish into severe depression. But even more, we would these young people would show up at our doorstep and they would, they would be dead in a few weeks, sometimes a month. We rejoiced when someone lived six weeks. It was like precious time. And we started to wonder, why us? Why were we the ones that they came to? When their families rejected them, their parishes were afraid to have them in, in the church, the society was scared to death of them. Why did they decide to come to our parish? And that started a conversation among us about who we were as a people of God. Um, we started, uh, Jennifer Phillips, who was the rector with me, started, and we started talking about the precious gift of being with people at their most broken time. Um, and not understanding. I remember the first time we went... Uh, Jennifer and I went to see a, a priest who had been diagnosed with AIDS. And we had to do universal precautions. We had masks on and we had gloves on and we had uh, body armor on and we sort of walked stage in. And Jennifer and I walked in to see Father Carl. Um, and Jennifer said, what are we doing? Take off this nonsense. So we took off the rubber gloves. The nurses and doctors would not come near us because... They, at that point, didn't know how AIDS was communicated anyway. But we said, we can't, as priests, go in there with people and be so guarded and so fearful um, that, we would, we, that we would get sick. We can't do that. We have to go in as human beings, relating one human being to another. So it started a conversation in the parish that was a holy conversation, uh, about the preciousness of people, uh, regardless of where they came from or how they got there or who they were or how they lived, that God was present in all of us uh, and that we were the people that God had gathered in a place. And, uh, and we saw in those young men, uh, as we wept over their dying bodies very often and then as we wept in, the, in their funerals at the church, that we were the only ones that could see that God was in them. Their families couldn't. Uh, their, the, the wider world couldn't. And yet they were precious sacraments of God's love that we would put in these urns. And then uh, when the summer came in, in Boston, obviously Camp Barry in the winter, we would plant in our our community uh, uh, ossuary, where, where the, the community garden where we would put the dead. That discourse, that divine discourse about what really matters in life is what the church is about. Now, we spend a lot of time in the church doing nonsense. Uh, we fight about who's in the church, who's out of the church, whose interpretation of the scripture is better, 
While we are doing nonsense, the world falls apart around us. Uh, Our job in this place is to have a conversation that is so dynamic that it brings life to those who seem to have no life. In In a time of economic strife, to bring life to those who are fearful about their lives and what's going on among them, and uh, a conversation so filled with God that there is nothing that we can fear to face as a community, as a group of people. Uh, Our facing the fear, in a sense, is what Jeremiah was talking about. So as Israel was facing the fear of their doom, a doom that we couldn't imagine, I mean, we don't know what exile is to lose house and home and be sent uh, thousands of miles away to become a servant to a group of people whose language you don't even understand. The fear of doom in Jeremiah's day must have been overwhelming. And Jeremiah says, go sign a contract for a piece of property and put it in a jar. And it's going to be in that jar for a long time. But when you remember that you've signed that contract and that it's in a jar, even though it will be your great-great-great-grandchildren, tell them, because it is a sign of hope, that there will be a time when there will be sales of property again in Israel. Now, they were in exile for 500 years, if not longer. I don't know, 400? But certainly longer than a generation so that they could tell their children there is a place where this is going to, where life is going to come again, no matter how bad your life is. In a sense, the church is the jar of hope in the midst of that, provided we have the kind of conversations and memory and connections with one another as a community where we can face the darkest and most profound fears of our lives together and in God's presence so that God can be released again, the energy and divine presence of God can be released in our lives so that there is nothing we need to fear if we are apart. Um, The same applied, in a sense, to the community in uh, 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 that Timothy was talking to. Uh, Timothy doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, despite the translations. What he says is the passion, the desire, is what is the root of all evil. It doesn't matter, really, whether it's a desire for money or a desire for power or a desire for authority, whatever it is. That desire is going to get in your way. And we are brought into community so that we can check our desires, so we can... Uh, correct one another in our lives. Uh, That's why he's writing to Timothy. He's saying, "Uh, Timothy, I knew your grandmother. I uh, I know who you were. I know the kind of faith you have. And so he's saying, let the community uh, check your desires, whatever they are. So the discourse that we have, the conversation we have in the church has to be a conversation that corrects us. Uh, Not the priest sticking a finger and saying, you change, 
but each of us looking and, and living together in such close intimacy that we change because we want to be a people more transparent to God's presence. So we're like uh, rocks, rough rocks in uh, the seashore that just sort of grinds them down until they're soft and pliable in community. Now the good news in the gospel is that we don't need to have the chasm that separated the rich man and Lazarus. Here in the church, in this sacred urn of faith in which we put the most precious things of our lives, and in this church in which the discourse that can transform us all by our uh, intimacy with one another and with God, in this place there is no chasm between the rich and the poor, those who are in the bosom of Abraham and those who are not. We heal that chasm that the gospel was talking about as we ourselves uh, enter into intimate relationship with each other and with God. When we come into that conversation that changes us and transforms us, then there is no separation between heaven and earth, God and human, because in the conversation God is made alive. God is made present. And so as we enter into that discourse as a community, we find ourselves enlivened and enabled to face any problem without any fear and with great hope because we know that when we gather as a community and begin to speak the words of God, that God is present and transforming us. So the good news is that the chasm that the rich man and Lazarus experienced is not one that we ever need experience so long as we are in this place and so long as we are in the kind of godly conversation that remakes our lives. Um, and we have, therefore, a great hope. The, the experience of St. John's Bowden Street with those years of AIDS made us a holy place. It was tough. It was tough. Uh, and we had to defend ourselves with the bishop, who really didn't want anything to do with AIDS, and parishes, the rich parishes up the street. We, didn't, we, we were held together by bubble gum and hope, uh, not by money. Um, but slowly over time, we became such a powerhouse uh, of the faith that we were a parish to contend with. Bishops feared to come into our presence. Uh, they feared us because they knew that the, everyone in that congregation spoke the word of God to them. And they were scared to death. Barbara Harris came and stood at the back door after her consecration, and we had 30 adults for confirmation. 30 adults in this tiny little parish that didn't have two cents to rub to that together. Uh, and Barbara Harris said, what the hell is going on here? And we said, no hell at all. This is where you'll find God. So people found us because what was going on inside was so incredibly rich and full of God. We didn't agree about anything. We had Republicans and, and Democrats and probably anarchists. 
We had high church and low church. We had rich people and lawyers and homeless people all in the same place. We couldn't agree to what time to eat lunch. But we could agree that what we spoke about when we did finally have lunch was God. And that's what made the difference in the community. The same thing happens whenever the people of God gather. And so our hope is that in this jar, we fill it with a divine conversation that makes our hearts and souls come to life. And in that is hope. Not in our cash, not in our retirement funds, as we know. Not in anything else, but in the hope that we as the people of God will engage in such a conversation that life will overflow abundantly among us. Amen.